Blog Talk Radio. Now let's join Holly Steffi and Red Velvet Media as we explore the inspirational worlds of music, media, and more. Peter Gabriel did that song. Welcome to Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio. And today I have a really special guest with me and my co-host from New York, um, Spencer Drake. Um, I have Daryl Isla, who is with me, and he just got finished writing an amazing book, The Life and Music of Peter Gabriel. It's called Without Frontiers. And um, I have actually um, read the book, and it's quite amazing. Um, if you would like to listen to this show later, um, it will be available on iTunes and also on demand as a podcast afterwards. And if you'd like to call in, our phone number is 347-677-1036. And with that, I'm going to bring Daryl in, who's calling in live from the U.K., and also my co-host, Spencer Drake. 
and we are going to talk about Peter Gabriel. There you guys are. Welcome to the show, Daryl. Hey. Hello there. Hi, Doc. <laughs> Hello. So Hello, Holly. Were... Hey, were you were you blown away with that opening song, Strawberry Fields? Did you even know he did that song? Who, me or Spencer? Both of well, you. Yeah, I mean, I, I heard about it, but I never heard the song, believe it or not. And I thought it was a great song to open up the show with because a lot of people have never heard that song, I believe. You know what I'm saying, Holly? No. Yeah, it's it's unusual in the fact that it was actually his first um, solo recording uh, as a singer after leaving Genesis. He produced a record uh, before that, but that was the first time uh, people had heard his voice after leaving Genesis in 75, and it is very rarely heard, and and the whole album it's from is is very rarely heard. But uh, a very interesting thing, all this in World War II, all about uh, old footage of the Second World War with all these cover versions um, of Beatles songs over it. And it, it never really took off, did it? No. No, so that's kind of cool that I opened it up with that then. So I want to hear mm. a story about that. What? what, what um, so you gave us a little bit of information about that was the first time people had actually heard his voice. This is uh, great. Yeah. That was the first because it... it, it it came in between. It came, you know, before the first album mm-hmm. the, with Salisbury Hill on it, the the Car album, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that that was the first time, and it was sort of buried. And, and it, I think, the interesting thing with that, I mean, he's obviously uh, a lifelong Beatles fan, or or from, you know, because I mean, it's interesting because in the book, I mean, he went to to public school just as, you know, he heard "Please Please Me" in his parents' back of parents' car. And then She Loves You was number one when he went to Charterhouse. So the Beatles have been, you know, a huge influence on him. So it was interesting that that was the first thing he did. Mm. And in that, you hear how, you know, the power of his voice and that, you know, sort of soulfulness and vulnerability that's there. And I think that really does showcase it. And it's, you know, it's obviously a very good song, well written, you know, quite popular. Um, done nicely. Unbelievable version. Can I bring up some questions, Holly? Yeah, okay. of course, Ben. Well, I wanted to, uh, the car album, uh, Daryl, my close friend was Storm Thorgerson, by the way. Oh, wow, and, yeah. Yeah, and I designed a lot of famous album covers, if you don't know me, uh, for Ramones and I don't know. But Storm uh, had our album cover in his book, but the thing that interests me in your book is about what they call the car album, and that was Storm's car that Peter sat in, and the rain rain was coming down, droplets on the front window, and it's really historic album cover, and um, I thought it was really interesting it brought that into the book about Storm and the and the cover, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, sure, Well, I, and I think Storm over here, I mean, worldwide as well, but I think in, in Britain, we, we, you know, the because he was, you know, a sort of local lad from up the road. But I think there was that thing that in the 70s, I mean, I was just a, a kid, but I mean, and because I was a kid, I mean, because I was sort of uh, like 11 when that first album came out and I bought it, I was, I was, you know, very into music for a very young age. You know, the cover was an extension of of the record and You're the right. whole thing with the 12-inch vinyl. And where you had, you know, Roger Dean on one hand doing his marvellous remote landscapes in in a sort of very futuristic way you had right. this sort of warped reality that storm and the whole hypnosis team brought to to it you know as famously covered on the pink floyd albums um but it exactly. was interesting that genesis had those sort of covers until the land lies down on broadway where they brought in storm 
I did. My uh, actually, favorite. I did, I did, my I, favorite. I, yeah. I did. Uh, I did uh, the tour ads for Genesis 1979 tour. Oh wow! Yeah, I did a lot of yeah. stuff. Yeah. But but um, I wanted to bring up a story that Holly and I know, and he was on our show, Joseph Arthur, who is a music client for my partner Judith and I, and we designed for him, and he, you know, discovered by Peter Gabriel. Oh, and whoa, actually, whoa, yeah, sure. The opening, when Joseph played, I want to tell this story, it's really cool. When Joseph played, uh, the first night he played, sitting in the front row, unbeknownst to him, was Peter Gabriel and Lou Reed with a tape recorder. And Joseph told a story on our, on our show that Holly and Judith and I are on, but it was really an incredible thing. And I noticed he's mentioned in a couple of places in your book, Joseph, and he is a, Peter loves his work. You know, his art, and we repped his artwork, by the way, Joseph Arthur in, in, in New York. And uh, he's a very close friend and uh, part of our life. And, uh, he's a great but, uh, guy. But I he's mentioned and... in your book. Sure. And, I mean, it's interesting because he's never he's, – he's sort of – Remained that sort of uh, a big cult, you know. He's, he's never yeah. quite made it uh, to that level, but it, he's an artist, artist, you know. That's that somebody well, talks about with me. And that, it's funny you said that. Somebody talks about Spencer. He goes, Spencer, I've got to get more up there, you know. But he's been on yeah. major shows, and he's been on like, uh, you know, incredible. He's been on David Letterman five times. He's been on a major, sure. uh, you know, Jules Holland. Uh, he's been on, you know, these shows and. And yet he hasn't uh, accrued this thing that he, where I feel he should be at. But he's a genius, you know. I mean, uh, and major musicians follow him. And uh, sure. But yeah, but but I, I know Peter always. And when we got the when we got like the art things for him to go into a show, we had to get his bio. And Peter Gabriel would always write a paragraph on him and his art. He loved his art and his music, you know. And it always it always stuck with me. You know, it still sticks with sure. me. Sure. That's so awesome. Sure. You know, I want to ask you, Daryl, what made you choose Peter Gabriel as a subject for you to write this book? This is an amazing book, by the way. It's available um, pretty much anywhere. You can find it on um, iBooks. You can find it online. And, again, it's um, Without Frontiers, The Life and Music of Peter Gabriel. And by the way, the chat room is open, by the way. I wanted to let everyone know, and if you want to go in there, you can join the chat room. And if you missed the beginning of the show, you can listen to it on iTunes afterwards and on demand on Red Velvet Media. And um, you can call us. Call us, 347-677-1036. But getting back to my original question, what made you decide to write about Peter Gabriel, Daryl? Because um, I'm, I've am i been very drawn in, in mm-hmm. my books to um, interesting characters, interesting sort of multifaceted characters. And I, I've sort of written... Mm-hmm. Three, what I would deem major books, and then and then I've written some other books as well, which I'm all very very proud of. But the the, the three sort of major books are uh, the first book I wrote, uh, and this is a long answer to a short question, but the first no book no I wrote no go on, for it. Um, you're my you're, you're, you're Cheek show, Nile Rogers and Cheek. <laughs> uh huh. Cheek on Nile Rogers and Cheek. Oh and, yeah. And the whole oh. disco movement, because again I felt oh, wow. I think there's something about the slight that the sort of the maverick eccentric. Um, which is yeah. there, and I think Nile is a is a fabulous example of that. Uh, I wrote a mm-hmm. book, possibly on the you know the, the biggest cult band I think of all time in within rock is um, Sparks, who you know mm. come from down the road from where you are, Holly, and are barely known uh, in America. Um, yeah, and they're barely known worldwide, but they follow it. You know, they they have this 
hardcore following that's there that's been yeah. able to sustain them as artists for you know going on 40 years now uh, and I think Peter fits very much into that camp obviously he's had more success well Niall has had the bigger hits but Peter's had you know tremendous longevity and I think there's that thing with his, the intelligence uh, the eccentricity uh, I think us Brits love eccentrics we see the eccentric in ourselves totally. yeah um yeah. sort of amplified in others and, and interestingly he's the first um british artist i've written about in in a long-form book because i've been you know like many uh brits growing up you know sort of obsessed with american music um mm-hmm. as well as british music but but peter that there's that i think there's that thing about the only uh, with all respect to your fine country and fine musicians, there's that thing that the, the sort of British eccentric maverick, I say gentleman, it's not always a gentleman, but but often can be, who absorbs all these influences, you know, white boys who love soul music, but mm-hmm. also are quite, you know, happy, you know, discussing mathematical theorems or off-the-wall comedy or something like that, and they wrap it all together with this sort of strange manner that they have and you know you just look at Gabriel through the years in the 70s you know uh, the person in the street would just think blimey what a weirdo you know no totally get that Mm -hmm. singing about you know what was he singing about there's religious references coming in there's you know uh, rail the Puerto Rican punk living in the sewers of New York but then which is really a quest for himself you know these are heavy heavy scenes and, you know, mm-hmm. he's like 22. <laughs> right. He's 22. Shouldn't he be, you know? And in a way, I sort of love the fact that that was happening. Um, certainly, like the rail thing, we, we, you know, he sent something in the air that mm-hmm. you know, yeah, changed totally. all the shift that was being. And, you know, you, you, you say you work with the Ramones there, Spencer. I mean, that, that sort of thing that was happening with you in New York that was yeah. happening here in Britain, which became punk, but it was happening before that with Dr. Feelgood and characters like that. You know, I was going to one... mention that to you, uh, what I read in your book, which you, which is about uh, that he was trying to get aware of that movement, what you're talking about, and so aware of the heads. And um, uh, there's a question about Larry Fass uh, mentions about something like they all went together and he was went to yeah. Ramon's thing in Toronto and uh, they're trying to... Yeah. And, and scoping, scoping like talking heads, who I work, by the way, designed for also, and also um, the, um, and, uh, you know, Blondie, you know, and just what you're yeah. saying. Exactly right. I, I got very in, intrigued with that. I didn't realize that, actually, as I read the book. That he it's was... actually a really heavy book. This book, not meaning that it's heavy in a way that you don't want to read it, it's very, it draws you in big. because... <laughs> You No, no, because, Daryl, you really painted a picture of what Spencer's talking about and then also about the fact that, you know, the different things that he did when he went on his solo tour or when he started going solo and and how he felt like he had to be a father and take care of his child and he was newly married and he decided that it was stressing him out to be in the band and stuff. So... I get that because I totally know a lot of people that are like that, and you know they have kids. Their whole their whole preferences change. You know everything changes in their whole life. But he kept doing this music, and I mean, not only the music that um, I want to talk to you about, but also music for um, movies. Like first of all, like the one that I told you about before we started, the Last Temptation of Christ. What a mm. heavy soundtrack that is. I mean. 
What do you know about that? Well, yeah, but I mean, I think the thing with that, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think that whole awakening he had in mm-hmm. the 80s or the late 70s and 80s when he was, you know, began his interest in what become became known as world music, but sort of other, you know, yeah. other music, not just the, the stuff that, that we all know sort of growing up. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it, I think that was the moment where the sort of two sides of him really aligned and he was able to make the record that he wanted to make. And he sort of started that. He did the soundtrack to Alan Parker's Birdie film, which came mm-hmm. out of sort of working with bits of his previous material after what you know as security and we know as Peter Gabriel Four over here. Um, is, is, you know, that had started to develop. But obviously what had happened was he'd become a global superstar in between you know that album and and when he came to make passion with with so and obviously the the, the mm-hmm. success of Sledgehammer, uh which gave him the platform to finally do whatever he wanted and mm-hmm. he'd had you know Scorsese first came to him in about uh, 82 or 83 uh, cuz he was going to make that after I think King of Comedy as as the film but mm-hmm. <laughs> as you can understand studios were not sort of rushing to fund it um, so it fell through. And of course, in Peter Gabriel way that the album became something far more than just a soundtrack to the film. And, it, and again, in classic Peter Gabriel way, it, you know, it wasn't ready <laughs> at the time the film came out. And if it came out, I think, I don't know, a good period later. But it was all these ideas just developed out. What I'm interested you know, about P- Peter, you know, soundtrack. Remember, Spence, when I yeah, heard yeah, you on that? It's an incredible soundtrack, Holly. You're right. I mean, totally agree with you. I mean, it's amazing, out of the box. I call it like an out of the box visionary, mm. which he is, right? He's a visionary type soundtrack, which which somebody else would not do. You know what I mean? It's kind of like he he finds these things. Like I'm intrigued with like real world, his label, right? Because. Um, yes. Daryl, where, where he picks these uh, musicians. You know who had that was uh, Chris Blackwell at Island. When I designed sure. Island, he had a label called Axiom, and Axiom was a label. Yeah, yeah. Right? Uh, we had these musicians that he knew weren't going to sell, but they were yep. experimental and visionary, right? And I, like I worked on Ginger Baker's album for Axiom. But That's they weren't right. going to sell, but they were visionary. And as soon as I got some music from Real World, I said, oh, my God, this is the same thing in another block, right? And it was, yeah. right, Daryl is kind of like, he's really into supporting musicians that have something to say, and it, it, the music is out there, right? It's not like the normal, what we call commercial, right? It's experimental or visionary, what I call it, right? Well, yeah, I, I mean, I think visionary, the thing... yeah. Visionary, well, I think, you know, I think the, the interesting thing yeah. with him is he takes, he won't take the obvious routes. You know, the the obvious route that a lot of musicians would have done after having an album like So was make So 2 and then So 3 and then So 4 <laughs> and so on, if you will. Right. Um, but, you know, but, you know, what he did was do that, you know, completely left field. It was completely like, right, I now have a platform to be able to do just what I want. I believe in these artists. You know, he, he, I think his radar is really... You know, very well attuned and, and he... It's he, you know, he on, loved huh, Daryl? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, and you know, you know, I used so that album cover uh, as a example when I talked to people about an, 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 one of the most iconic album covers using a photograph. So when I uh, r- relate to people doing photographs on their front, because we design a lot of music packaging, I say we don't want to use the ordinary picture and do that normal thing. We want to do like 
for example, So by Peter Seville, you know, with a photograph yep. and a type solution that's outrageous, right? If you look at it, simple, gorgeous, though, absolutely gorgeous in black and white. Sure. Right? So that's an example of a great album cover besides a great album, you know? I like no, the cover and of I, your I, book, Daryl. I like the black yes. and white photo. It's it's great. It's uh. Well, I wanted something that just you know that people would identify with. I mean, there's so many. Yeah. You know, the thing is, Peter Gabriel now obviously looks like a a very lovely older man with his you know mm-hmm. bald head and his goatee, yeah. and I think so many people know that so image. Right. And I mm-hmm. think something sort of around right. that period, yeah. because he. You know, it's amazing. He's he's an exceptionally, you know, you look at some of that early footage. He's just this electric p- personality. Yeah, you know, could turn yeah. it on. You saw him on stage, but you know, very very handsome man. You know, and, and mm. but hid behind loads of masks, and you know, with the real Peter Gabriel stand up sort of thing. And I thought this picture was a sort of fairly good, not too posed sort of representation. Right. Yeah, no. That's the picture of the mirror was well brought up. Yeah, let me ask you a question. You know what's really interesting, too, which I, I've been a part of, was the uh, video. Peter Gabriel had incredible videos, you know, sure. for his music. And he, they're very highly conceptual. And I believe sure. they won some, actually, MTV awards. So at that time, this was like, you know, going back. But I was always intrigued by his videos. They were very conceptual, highly, you know, uh, thought out, right? And um, Absolutely. Really cool. I think the thing, the thing is, he's always, uh, you know, been a very visual artist right from the start, and I think yeah. that was because, uh, you know, aside from his, his his interest in art and 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 you know painting and things like that, that he, you know, he didn't have anything else to do in Genesis while while they were all you know noodling away doing long solos and stuff. He had to, uh, you know, hold an audience's attention. So therefore, you know, this sort of striking visual side came. And obviously, when when videos came along, you know, he he was in his element because that was he could do what he had to do thirty nights in a row around America or around Europe. Uh, he could do it once, and it might be a painstaking process, but then it would do go on tour for him. Millions of other artists felt the same thing at the same time, but I think his sort of extra dimension, if you like, that that way. That you know, one always thinks of Sledgehammer, but Sledgehammer was like you know five years worth of costumes on stage with Genesis condensed into three minutes of a pop video, and it also mm-hmm. what it did do was introduce him to the world as here's a man with a sense of humour because I don't think anyone would have ever thought that even though if you knew his work you knew it had a tremendous sense of humour but most po- people saw him as a sort of po-faced progger. Uh, you saw, you know, a handsome man, a man unafraid to laugh at himself, and was prepared to have sort of, you know, plasticine bump into his face and popcorn dance around his head and all of that. <laughs> and that, you know, introduced totally. because what he did and that MTV bubble, as you know, will never come again. That was the, you know, about '86, yeah. the perfect storm where it had been there for a few years and people had got used to it. People had started mm-hmm. to see. The, the potential of the format, and obviously it was the, uh, you know, let me tell your history back to you, but the Brits who were sort of a bit further down the line with their sort of, you know, concepts in their videos and things like that with, with again, old pop stars like Kevin Godley and Lowell Krim from 10CC who, you know, were, were making a lot of these films. Obviously MTV loved it because the, the, here was content, and then that point where everyone ran with it, and before MTV became something, you know, completely different, 
and Gabriel was completely there. And I think you look at, there's very few artists where you can actually look at like a DVD compendium of their promos and, mm-hmm. and not feel terribly embarrassed by, you know, bad hair or, or when the storyline of the couple breaking up or something like that was happening in the background. But you actually look at Gabriel's and each one, you you know, you're very intrigued to see what he's up to. And even just the straight performance ones are like, wow, you know, this is this is weird. Yeah. Well, what is the story on WOMAD? The festival he runs all the time, which Joseph actually plays in. It's a great sure. idea, great concept. Well, I mean, it's so well loved now. I mean, it, and I think the thing that you know Peter says is that sort of tenacity. You know, he doesn't give up. If he believes in an idea, he'll do it. And you know, a ridiculous dream. You know, the notion. I mean, now I don't know what it's like with you over there, but in Britain now, you know, there's a festival every five minutes. Every town has a festival. Oh yeah. Yeah, you know, but you go back thirty years. Festivals were things that you know, serious hippies went to. You know, it it wasn't Mm -hmm. something that was just part of everyday life or college. You know, you went. You know, that's what you did. You go to a festival, and I think when when Peter had that first idea in eighty two, you know, the couple of characters from Bristol in Britain to to do, you know, to showcase these artists he believed in, you know, it it was sort of quite off the wall and. um, you know, it like he wasn't he wasn't a concert promoter, but he had a dream, and they weren't concert promoters. And his manager at the time said, you know, perhaps you should talk to concert promotion promoters. And even you know Tony Smith, who was still you know Genesis manager, and he still had a, a sort of hand in Gabriel's manager. You know, had made his name as a promoter, but Peter wanted to do it, and of course lost a huge amount of money in doing it. And there's a great Gail Colson, who was his manager at the time, said, you know, she was driving to the festival with, with one of her team. And she started, you know, she said to her assistant in the car with her, sort of, this isn't right. Uh, and the assistant said, why is that? She said, well, you know, there's a festival and I'm just driving to it. You know, there's no there's no traffic jam. You know, there's no cars backed up on the road. Uh, and of course, you know, and I think there was a train strike. All these things conspired to make it, uh, you know, an artistic success and a financial nightmare. Um, but fortunately, you know, and and famously, and showing the bond that's always there between them, Genesis stepped in, and they did their one-off reunion concert in '82, yeah, I, which made it so again. I and again, think it what was it's also done. his emotional outlet. What do you think about that, Daryl? I think that was his way of showing what he felt by doing that 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 festival. You oh, know, absolutely. and then the Genesis one off was great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean a real, you know, one off uh to to get him back on, on his feet. And again then Womad mm-hmm. started again small, you know, it grew and grew. And now, you know, in, in Britain it's this sort of uh established fixture um on yeah, the on the calendar like and there. goes worldwide. That's great. I love mm-hmm. it. You know, Daryl, uh, I want to spirit. ask you. I'm sorry, I didn't even interrupt you. No, I was going to say the spirit of it is, yeah, is very you know family friendly and all those things. Um, so I think, you know, Peter's incredibly fortunate in being able to see a lot of the dreams he's had become reality, and they, some have taken far greater time than others, but they have happened. Mm-hmm. He was really close to Robert Fripp, right? He was very close to Robert Fripp. Oh, for sure. And I mean, you know, I think that very interesting time, and you you talked about it with your work with, with Talking Heads there, Spencer, is, is that the, you know, I think there was that marvellous thing where 
there was that brief period, and it did centre around New York, where all these characters sort of came together. Bowie was there, um, Fripp lived there. Yeah, the, you know, in Gabriel. New York was like the Frippino thing. You know, that was another yeah. that label, E.G., I guess it was, right? E.G., yeah, no, they were all, they all sort of, you know, Fripp came to live in New York after Crimson split up. And, yeah. you know, so he was playing with Blondie and all that, you know, you know all this. But, you know, he was playing on Fear of Music and on the Zimbra and things like that. And they were all, you know, they were all sort of watching out for each other, doing similar things. And I think, to me, the album that sums up that whole period is, is Robert Fripp's album called Exposure. Oh, which yeah. I don't, Great album. It, it, I mean, it's a phenomenal album. If, if your listeners haven't heard it, I couldn't... Uh, I, no, I it's urge an awesome album. More. I've it heard is. it. Because, yeah. because it's like this alternative history of the, the late 70s where you've got, you know, Phil Collins is on drums, Peter Hamill, mm-hmm. who is one of my absolute heroes, a, you know, one of Gabriel's closest friends and, you know, a, a real wow. character. Hamill's there, Fripp's there, Eno's there. Daryl Hall is on it, you know, because he wanted to make mm-hmm. the album with Daryl Hall as a vocalist, but, you know, it didn't work out. And and it's it's just bizarre. It's like if King Crimson went punk, um, and, <laughs> you know that whole it's got that it's whole no way yeah. thing going through it and and you know Gabriel at the end he sort of comes in like the you know after the encore and sings a version of Here Comes the Flood which you know is the showstopper on the first album with a you know the classic Bob Ezrin production which you later hear on Comfortably Numb or you heard on Alice Records or things like that just mm-hmm. amazing and then he just takes it back to just uh, a piano with a little bit of frip sort of frippatronics in the background and it's mm-hmm. like well it's one of the most emotional things you'll hear and, it, and it's you know it's um a remarkable record but yes the the frip thing i mean they've again that sort of eccentric english gentleman sort of thing there oh yeah no i you know i want to ask you a couple things about the um, book itself and about you um sure how did you know? Yeah, because I want our listeners know, to know a little bit more about yourself, too, and what okay. is behind all this. First of all, I see that you work at the BBC. You've done work with the BBC and um, also yep. The Guardian, and yep. um, that's pretty That's pretty cool. And so when you were younger, Daryl, and growing up, and the music you were listening to, did you know you always wanted to write? What what? made you decide to start writing uh okay well i'm very fortunate uh in that i've always sort of made money out of music um my Mm -hmm. hobby has always been my job and i didn't actually start writing professionally till about 15 years ago because Mm -hmm. i never really thought i could you know it's one of those things it's 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 like you know when people suddenly become famous singers they thought oh, this would never happen to me and I'm, you know i'm hardly a famous singer but i think i'd, I'd worked in record shop i mean i grew up in record shops so i started mm-hmm. work uh as a saturday boy in a record shop when i was 13 and then Aww. went to, to work for a chain of record stores in the uk um it's sort of like a tower sam goody chain for for the yeah. There's longer memories over there, but they, we were called Our Price. And I worked there for a long time. And I used to write, um, you know, f- for the staff magazine, you know, stuff like that, record reviews. I'd mm-hmm. always written stuff like that. Um, I went to university when I was 30, 31, because uh, I just thought I must do this. I'd never done it. 
uh, when I was a kid because I'd started I was manager of a record shop when I was 18. And then, you know, I loved it at university and I I did American studies. Um and I ran the radio station there. And at that time, someone asked me to write liner notes. Someone I used to work with at our price had gone to work for a record company and said, well, you know, I know you can write because you used to write for us and the staff magazine. Would you write liner notes? And again, I started writing liner notes. And amazing, because again, I didn't think it was that easy to do, you know, uh, mm-hmm. did it. have written a lot of liner notes and that got me a job in, there's a UK magazine called Record Collector, mm-hmm. which is a bit mm-hmm. like, gold mine over there yeah, yeah, yeah um, I know it. and it's you know it's a, it's a specialist read yeah. but it was amazing because I'd read that magazine since I was a kid and there I was on the full-time staff writing about music for a living you know and the first thing they said to me was who would you like to you know the, who would you really like to interview the first person and I said well Peter Hamill because I, you know as I said before he's a, he's a very big influence on me and um Yes, yeah, so there I was in Bath interviewing Peter Hamill. It was like, good heavens above. So oh, wow. that's the sort of long version of, of how it happened. And then from there, I the opportunity to, to to write a book came up. Still writing sleeve notes, writing for Record Collector, Mojo, which is, I think you get Mojo over there, don't you? Yeah, Mojo, yeah, yeah we got Mojo, yeah. yeah. And then um, The Guardian. Yeah, and then, doing, and then, and then from that, things happen. And, and it... You know, with all these things from from what you both do, some you you do something at one point and then you know it you think it's forgotten, and then out. someone will read it or yeah. pick it up or see it, and they'll contact you for <laughs> something else. Yeah. So it's this lovely sort of rolling thing. And also, I I have a very very broad interest in music. I I, I you know I love soul, I love funk, and I love prog. They're my sort of three biggies. But yeah, I work you know too. working in a record shop as a kid. I just mm-hmm. absorbed everything, you know, and to me, I, I and I can outra- I can in- infuriate some sort of, you know, hardcore, uh, you know, rock snobs because I, you know, I, I see no problem in uh, a Taylor Swift record, you know, I think that new, um, the, the Shake It Off, I just think it's one of the best pop singles ever, and I'm quite happy mm-hmm. to say that and feel really happy about it, mm. <laughs> as much as really enjoying Robert Fripp's exposure, you know, so. I, I can I I I write and love of a, a very broad spectrum of things but if you had to sort of if I had to pin my colors to you know five bands or something they they would be sort of classic um you know pop rock prog funk bands if you like prog is like the thing um I know over there I worked and I lived over there for a while and Marillion and Camel and all those mm. great prog bands oh my gosh I mean I my favorite one of my favorite radio stations that I have playing pretty much all the time and I know you have it over there is Mara which is prog radio over here in the USA oh yeah 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 and it's like unbelievable and you know I want to know what it was like I know you obviously sat down with Peter at one point or another when you wrote this book um what was that like for you well, it was interesting. I mean, I, I I didn't because I what I did was I contacted Real World and you know they mm. were very happy for me to do the book. Um, mm. Peter didn't want direct involvement, but he was very happy for me to speak. You know, to you know if people went and, and approached them to do it. But I have actually met Peter a couple of times since, and we've had lovely chats. Um, yeah, because you got great intro- reviews on the Genesis site on this book. I read the reviews on the Genesis yeah. site, and it's like they love it. 
love it. Well, I think the thing is, you know, I'm coming from absolutely the right place. I'm mm-hmm. not. You are. Mm-hmm. I, I think. I think the, the the thing is with authorized stuff, and I've done authorized stuff before, and certainly I've done sort of sleeve notes and press releases and things like that in the past, where it does have to be run past the artist every time. And in a way, for me, this book was the the best to have a sort of, you know, the indirect blessing or the sort of, you know, if you if you phone Real World and say, can I speak to this guy? I say, oh yeah, he's he's okay, you know, because I'm not. I was hardly going to have the opportunity to write about one of my favourite artists of all time and say, well, you know, he's not very good, is he? What yeah. what would be the point in that? I wouldn't want to... The, the amount of time it takes to do it and research it, why why would I spend two, two three years of my life doing a hatchet job? I mean, I know people do, but if I was going to do a hatchet job, I might as well do it in, you know, three weeks. You do an amazing job. I don't, I, and again, you know what I don't it, want it, that for me, reading the book, I find that uh, for anybody out there who's listening, um, and I'm sure Holly agrees with it, is that if you, if you don't know about Peter Gabriel at all, you, when you're reading this book, book, you'll have a good insight of knowing about his life, you know, everything. You know what I mean? And that's mm. what I find uh, so great about your book, the way you wrote it. You know what I'm saying? The depth in, the depth of it. It's, it's an amazing well, book, and I want to say real quick, this is Red Velvet Media, and today we have Daryl Eastlow with us, and, and we're talking about Without Frontiers, the life and music of Peter Gabriel. If you missed the beginning of the show, you can listen to it again on iTunes and on demand on Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio. The chat room is open. Everyone that's in the chat room that missed the beginning it will be available on iTunes afterwards and on demand on Red Velvet Media afterwards. I have to say that because... We get a lot of people that come in and out. And if you guys, if anybody wants to call in, if anybody has any questions, Daryl's calling in from the UK, and um, you, this is your one chance if you want to talk to him without flying over there <laughs> and finding out where he lives. You can call three four seven six seven seven one zero three six and um, talk to Daryl, myself, or Sir Spencer. So. Um, <laughs> Oh, we have, I we want to bring one more thing up that yeah. I thought was really interesting in the book, Holly. Um, yeah, Daryl, uh, about, about the comment about, which I thought was really, I didn't have no idea, Genesis opened up for Lou Reed. This, was, to me, was unreal. It was that yeah. Genesis, and it was like, when they, they, what describe it, they said Lou's, Lou's fans would be on Downers or something, and, and, and Genesis crowd would be on T. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah. no, absolutely. And and that is where Bob Ezrin first met um, Peter Gabriel, um, because he Ezrin was doing. He was just about to do Berlin. Um, I can't remember if Berlin had come out. Or it was just about to come out. But Genesis were given their you know their first. They were on Buddha when they came over in, in the first instance and had a. They they had these tremendously sort of early mismatched concerts, um, and. Yeah, it was a it was a curious sort of audience because I think you know Lou was at the height of his um, well many sort of dark albums, but I mean I think that period there Berlin was taking a very dark turn, right, and it was. Um, suddenly you had you know Genesis talking about giant hogweeds and uh, fountains of Salmasis <laughs> and things like that, and and it, the two were not especially compatible. <laughs> Oh, by the uh, way, I, Judith, and I, I, Judith and I designed two Lou Reed albums. We designed New York and Magic and Lost album for Lou. What a classic Yeah, we did a show uh, about that. We did a Lou Reed cover. tribute show for that. 
Yeah, yeah. we did a Holly and I and Judith did a Lou Reed tribute show. We had Joseph Arthur yeah. on. It was a great show. Wow. I but think, Lou Reed, I, I mean, think... he's a whole thing right now. And, in in, you know, here is you got two iconic things going on in New York. you got Ramones and Lou Reed right now because yeah. of the, what's been happening. You know, Tommy died and... You still got well, Mark absolutely. and Ramon in that original set, but it's it's it. They just had a CBGB fest here, but it's like Lou Reed and um, you know are uh, and the Ramones are really like up there right now. I'm sort of out there because of you know Lou passing away recently. Yeah, yeah. Oh. Well, no, it's the same here, and I mean, I think the whole thing. I mean, Ramones especially. It, it's and I mean the whole way that the the. Well, uh, I, gotta get I know we're not here to talk about the Ramones, but I mean, <laughs> so, sorry, Holly, I missed you there. Uh, no, I said I got to get Richie to listen to this one. We were, um, you know, Richie Ramon. <laughs> right. yeah. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. I got to get Richie to listen to this show. I love, yeah. But, but, I, I want. Yeah, I want to say that fascinating you. thing about the Ramones, how how the yeah. whole branding thing came about, where you get kids, you know, li- literally schoolgirls and schoolboys over here in Ramones t-shirts. With right. hardly Holy. any idea who they are, apart from the fact <laughs> they know it's cool. And it right. was like and when I was a kid in the 80s. Right? <laughs> yeah, got it all. It's like when I was a kid in the 80s, we knew James Dean was cool. I mean, I'd never seen any of his films because you couldn't see them then. This was pre, you know, video was a new thing. Mm-hmm. But we knew he was cool, you know, and people wore James Dean t-shirts. And the way that the Ramones have have just become this thing, you know, yeah, it's, it's amazing. Like, it's like, yeah, it is. We were. Um, we did a, we a CBGB were... fest just finished here. Uh, Daryl was very big. I covered it and I spoke at it actually with Seymour Stein um, oh, and wow. uh, Mick Rock. And uh, sure. but Mick, I worked on the end of the century cover with Mick Rock photograph and Road to Ruin with John Holmstrom cartoon. Those are two classic iconic albums that I worked on. Oh sure, no, absolutely. But that, and I mean, it didn't. Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. When I was going to say it's interesting over here that uh, one of that uh, alumni, old David Byrne. I mean, he's just opened a show at the National Theatre in in oh, London. Oh wow. Um, called Here, Here Lies Love, which is the show he wrote about the um, Imelda Marcos, you know, in the Philippines, um, and that's just opened here. So I mean, it's it's interesting oh, wow. how all that, the characters from that, you know, when you knew them all as, you know, the punks playing in that place, have all become. I mean, sad the ones that are still here. I mean, sadly a lot of them aren't, but you know, like Blondie, are this iconic thing over here that just go on and on. Yeah, she's like totally timeless. I think she's timeless. I want to ask you, what is Peter working on now? Do you know what um, he's currently working on? So we can talk a little bit about that now. So there's just so he's just since the book um, finished. I mean, he's done the the big thing over here, and I think you've got it coming over there. That there's the documentary uh, called Mm -hmm. Some of the Parts, Mm -hmm. which is the Genesis um, history. Mm-hmm. Where all five of them of the classic lineup are back together in a room. I mean, they don't play, but they're in a room being interviewed, and they they've just done a lot of sort of press and everything for that over here. And he's sort mm-hmm. of working, you know, he's he's doing the follow up to um, Up, you know, which he's been working on since 2002, mm-hmm. because he had that moment. He did the Scratch My Back album, where he did the covers of of uh, some of his favourite songs with with the orchestra. And then he he loved that so much. He then did some of his own songs with the with the New Blood Orchestra. They have a follow quite, up, right? I'll scratch yours. Isn't that the follow up? Well, I'll scratch yours. Was the, the 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 thing with Scratch My Back was he was covering these songs to to get the artist to cover the songs back. Yeah. And some of the artists declined 
period, Bowie being one of them, and obviously he knows Bowie, uh, but Bowie declined, uh, and I think Radiohead declined. But, I mean, Lou did uh, Salisbury Hill, and if you've ever yeah, heard that verse... Yeah, that Joseph yeah, I mean, Arthur got in because Radiohead declined, and he replaced that's Radiohead. Right. Joseph Arthur. That's right. Yeah. That's mm-hmm. right. And he does a cover of Shock the Monkey. He does a version that's a killer of Shock the yeah, Monkey. Yeah, I heard that. That's, that's yeah. great. Mm-hmm. And um, David Byrne does I Don't Remember, and... Um, there's there's a really there's a stupendous one on there. I can't remember which one it is now. But Lou Salisbury Hill is just it is it, worth a listen because it's oh, you yeah, can exactly. just about make out a tune somewhere. Absolutely. In it. <laughs> hey, you know when you wrote this book, Daryl, what mm. part of the book was like a part you wanna you, you had like some memories or some feelings or some like you really went you felt the emotions when you were writing that part of the book and especially with Peter and all the things that he's been through. Um, Well, I think, I mean, I think the whole, you know, the period sort of 75 to 82 Mm -hmm. is, is, you know, it's really interesting because you can't help. And I mean, I'm, you know, we're all getting older and I'm still sort of, relatively young I like to think but I'm nearly 50 now but I was that you know I was I was a fan as a kid if you like and you look back now and like all that happened you know Genesis became sort of successful to that point where you know they could command bigger venues and bigger fees when Gabriel was like 22 and then by the age of sort of 25 he'd left just as they were about to make it um and then, you know, lots of things happened in his life, sort of by the time he was 30. And you look back on that now and you just think, blimey, that's really young, <laughs> you know, to, to have all that experience, to all those experiences. And I think I admire anybody who follows their heart to the point where, you know, any common sense sort of accountant would have said, Peter, you know, this band's in debt. You're the frontman of this band. You know, you're the reason people are coming to see it. Don't leave now. You're just about to have, you know, success. And, you know, he wanted to follow his heart. And mm-hmm. That's how I, I see thing... him. That's yeah. how I see him, that he basically really was, um, followed his heart, was very uh, an emotional person, as you can see from the other song that I was going to talk about from City of Angels that he wrote. When uh, the in the funeral scene um, that he wrote, that was a pretty heavy song too. Um, that I think showed a lot of his emotion. I think that that was something that really I felt like I could feel his darkness, but I could also feel his emotions in it. Um, what part in the book do you think explains more about his emotional his emotions and things because i mean it's scattered throughout the book but there's some parts of the book that are even more like you know his herbie hancock stuff that he did you know and all that and the references to them and how he grew up and stuff like that what where do you know let's tell everybody in a little bit about how he grew up and how he got into music well i think you know he most most Everybody's a product of their parents, you know. We know mm-hmm. that simple, 
you know, simple biology and, and, and fact. But I think Peter has this almost, you know, you can cut him down the middle and he's 50-50 of either because, I mean, his father was a very, very fascinating character. And that was one of the things mm-hmm. to me, finding out more about his, his father. And I didn't want to go, you know, it's a book primarily about his music and his career. And, mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the, the big emotional exposés are not in the book. A, because there's not that many of them in his in his life, but B, it's, you know, that isn't any of my business. Leave that for someone else. But the, the background of, of growing up, you know, in a, in a sort of lost Britain, really, the sort of Britain that uh, I think people imagine uh, from old films of, you know, Bobby's on the beat and, um, you know, I don't know, people doffing their caps when other people walk past mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know he he sort of grew up in in, in that environment in a in a sort of uh, a place called surrey which is outside of london a very leafy part uh that he could get you know you could get into london within about 30 minutes but it was removed um and his parents you know his father was a sort of uh scientist character he, he worked mm-hmm. you know in research um and it later came to to light that he had actually worked on a device that would knock uh, German bombers' radar off really? target. Really? Really? Wow. Yeah, wow. In, the, in the Second World War. So yeah. instead of them, um, because they worked on beams of light, and they found out some way of, of, of distracting them. So whereas they'd head for a big industrial city in Britain like Birmingham, they would they would diffract the beam to make them drop their bombs in a field in the countryside somewhere instead of you know on thousands of homes in the middle of town oh so wow his father that's what we need today thing. we need that today <laughs> well, <sure>. huh <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> if they really yeah if it could only happen um and and he his father was a part of a team that invented cable tv before anyone wow. wanted it. no 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 he, you know there was a company in Britain called Rediffusion, who were a television company, uh-huh. and this was about uh, seven, you know the early seventies, and and mm-hmm. you know like you, what you get telephone signals down a phone line, uh, pictures down a phone line. Don't you know? Don't yeah. be daft. Uh, and people weren't ready for it. So I think that side, and his father was always down the shed inventing stuff, you know. So I think that mm-hmm. side, that inquisitive, scientific uh, side, is there very much from his dad, who only died a couple of years ago. I mean, he was a hundred years old. He lived. Oh you know, my God. Wow. Wow. To me, you know, a couple of the people talked about his father's funeral, and I thought that was, you know, and Peter sang, you know, he did a song called Father Son, which his father was actually in the video um, for it when he did it. He did it in in 2000 for the Ovo album. You know, and it's just amazing, you know, and of course he was going to sing it at his father's funeral. Um, yeah. And his mother, on the other hand, was was you know into music, and her family were musical, and you know she would encourage the piano and and all of that in him. Um, and I think the fact that you know he went to a public school uh, in Britain, which is the, you call them private schools over there, it's the sort of very the very posh, the rich schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, he went there, and, and you know he met Tony Banks on the first day, and they were both the sort of outsiders that got together. Um, and at mm-hmm. that point, you, you know, music meant everything. I mean, now when we're so used to music everywhere, you know, you you can't move for music. I mean, people don't buy it anymore, but you can hear it. You know, rock and roll is is you know, every, just in the lifeblood. But 
in a public school in Britain in 1963-64, you know, it was that furtive thing. It was the the transistor radio under the bedclothes to try and hear a bit of, you, you know, a, a Beatles or a Stones record being played. And it was like the music of revolution. I, I think um, Richard McPhail, who was a lifelong friend and one of Genesis's roadie in the early days, was uh, Anthony Phillips, who was Genesis' original guitarist's uh, parents were convinced that um, Mick Jagger was the devil incarnate, <laughs> and he really what you know it was it was that the feeling was that strong you know. Wow. Um, and I think you know we lived through this, or you lived through this before me. We lived through this, and now, you know what shocks us? It takes an awful lot in the context of rock and roll to shock anybody now. But that's oh, it does. You know that's what he came into at that period and I think wow. you know, the, the, for me I think my favourite part was doing the final chapter which was you know when I interviewed everyone I just said you know your thoughts on Peter um, and you know uh, the last chapter called Peter is who Peter is which again is it sounds uh, you know almost trite in, in its title but in a way it, it, it just sums up you know he's this phenomenal his attention to detail is is infuriating and painstaking, and that's why he doesn't release albums, you know, one every eighteen months. Doesn't mean he's not busy for that time because he's got his fingers now in so many pies. With you know, we haven't even begun to talk about the humanitarian work, and I think that's another show in itself. But I mean, all these things are there. But his love and his passion, and no one can be. You know, it's very difficult to be infuriated with him, you know, for longer than a matter of minutes because, you know, know. he's charm itself when you meet him. And I, I'm sure you both have met him. And you, Spencer, you said you had. I mean, it's just, what well, you know, he, he's got that good old-fashioned British charm, you know. Well, he seems to he be a very... He is very uh, dashing, not He supports sure. musicians, I, and he yeah. has that benefit, right, Holly? He's got that... He's a huge benefit. humanitarian and did a lot of work, and like you said, very much Daryl. I mean, we could talk for hours about that because I had personal experiences with him on some of the nonprofits and some of the events that I've worked on personally that he's been part of, and... Um, he is a giver, and the thing, what's really, what was really striking to me about him was he was not afraid to do anything, and nor was he afraid to really um, be part of something. He wanted to be part of it, and he gave all of himself, not just part of it, because he wasn't like a music snob, like, hey, I'm a superstar, you know, whatever. No, he was totally like down for everything and very in touch with everyone else that was around him. Um, and, you know, Daryl, you touched on the part that I was going to ask you, what was part of, one of the part of your favorite parts, because I couldn't pick one favorite part in this book because this book is amazing. And, again, um, Daryl, I love it. Thank you very much. You're very kind. It is. No, 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 it is. It's awesome. Gerald, give your website out real quick because um, I know that the book's available pretty much everywhere. Go to iBooks and check it out. But you have your own personal website too, as well. Uh, I don't actually. I'm in the process of getting one. <laughs> I know you, you are can... on a lot of, the, but there's a lot of links. If you just put the word Daryl D A R Y L, oh, if you put me in, you'll find me. Yes, Daryl in there. Yeah, you'll find me. But I've got. 
You're in there. E-A-S-L-E-A. Eastley. Yeah. <laughs> and I know it? that we're supposed to go till 3, and I extended the show a little bit. I know you're calling from England. Do you have a few more minutes, or do you need to go? Uh, I can give you a few more minutes. A few more minutes would be a great... But then it's very late over here, and I've got to get up early. You're such a gentleman. I must tell you that I'm drinking my Earl Grey tea right now. (laughs) Rock and roll. Uh, You know, I can can top that. I'm drinking water. Oh, no. I'm a huge water advocate. I I drink a lot of water, but um, you can't take that part of me out of me about the tea. I have a tea cabinet, as they would say, and I have so much tea in my cabinet. It's like crazy. But um, so how long were you in you England know, for? Oh gosh, I went to Rada, believe it or not. Um, you went to Rada, get you? I went to Rada, yes, I did, and actually went to boarding school there, and also in Switzerland. And then I came back. My dad was um, working with the embassy over there, so wow. um, yeah, it was pretty crazy, but. I really, you know, it's funny. If I come back, like I had said to you earlier, we were talking about where um, the house is. And when I go back to England, when I come back for probably the first week and a half, I have a slight British accent. It's so funny. Because when you grow up around it and you hear it, and, you know, it's pretty funny. I've taken my daughter over there a couple times, and she's just like, come home and, and she'll be talking with a little bit of an accent when she was younger, when she was a small child. It was really funny. And people would say, where are you from? You know, because you can't tell because California and then a British accent. And, hey, Spencer, think about um, New York and a British accent, right? Right, exactly, right. You know, it's funny. You know, it's funny. I met Billy Idol uh, a couple of days ago with Steve Stevens. Uh-huh. At the and Billy true. Idol, being from Britain, he said he yeah. was raised in America. And it was really interesting. He said that he was almost banned in Britain because he, he wouldn't speak Brit- British slang at all. It was all American, right? Can you imagine this? Sure. And, he was, and he was brought up in Rockwell Center, Long Island. I almost fell on the floor because I didn't know that. I mean, it's just so uh, bizarre, you know, his life. You know, it's very bizarre. But it's that I was brought up. Uh, being old, I, I was brought up on MGs and Jaguars. My grandmother was born in London, so I was wow. brought up on a very big British thing with uh, the Jaguars and, and, and the driveway and MGs coming That's to the I house. Yeah, the box MGs, Holly, you know, and uh, Daryl. Yeah, you know, like and English Austin car. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, Aston Martin was big time. I didn't have that in the oh. family, but that was a big car. That was a great car. Yeah. You know? Well, there. Well, I live. You go on. I was going to say I could, I could continue London. about cars and Britain, but I won't. I'll stop there. But we, we I, no, actually, I'll say this. We, I live near a place called Dagenham, where Ford had I know what a huge. Is. I mean, yeah, we still have a plant there, but it doesn't make cars anymore. It does research and stuff. But in Essex, where I live, you know, the Dagenham, obviously, it was almost like the docks in Liverpool when the Beatles were getting the R and B records, because so much soul was sort of coming over through Dagenham and. Mm-hmm. and the whole sort of we had a thing over here called jazz funk, um, but you know that that all came through the Dagenham thing. So there's a sort of car America related bit there. So I can get you back to your question now, Holly. Oh, oh listen, no. I got I got I, I got to bring up something that was very interesting. Your book about Decca Records, where the Beatles were turned down. By, I saw this uh, great fact here. Uh, the Beatles were turned down by Decca. I, I feel a lot of people know that, uh-huh. but George Harrison suggested the Rolling Stones to go on Decca. That was a very interesting uh, fact yeah. that you brought up. 
I didn't know that. That's at all. right. Well, I think he 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 said in his quippy, sardonic way, you know, something like, you know, I won't do the accent. Uh, you know, you missed the boat with us. You missed the boat with us. You better go and sign them. That was more Ringo, I understand. But, um, you know, you know yeah. We're everyone can do Ringo. We're going to have Andrews on soon, too, um, who co-wrote Las Brisas with uh, Ringo. She's a dear oh, wow. friend, and we're going to have her on soon. Um, and I know that we're tight on time here, so let me just real quickly say, um, this Friday, make sure to tune in. I'm going to have... Um, Ed Klein, Kleinman on. We're going to be talking about um, his book, and um, that's kind of be, going to be a really interesting book um, because it's about um, his life working with John Lennon, behind the scenes Elephant Memories Band, and all that. And uh, then next week, I'm doing a special show on Tuesday with Al Soderwhite, um Spencer on his new Muhammad Ali book that's going to be coming out. And then I'm, and then on Wednesday, you'll like this, Daryl. I have Luke Potter from the UK. He's an up and coming um, artist there in the UK who is a sweetheart and is getting huge um, reviews over here in the USA on his music. He's going to be on on Wednesday. He'll be calling me. I think he's in. He's by the ocean there, so I'm not sure. He may be in Kent. I'm Luke not sure Potter. exactly where he's. Luke Potter. I'll send you a link okay. to link, a link to him. And then on uh, Friday, we'll have Steve Conti on. Right. And then then on the 29th, I'm going to have Fred Leon on, who did an amazing book on San Francisco before San Francisco, really all the unknown spots, all the beautiful photography, black and white photography, like real historical stuff. And then we get to the end of the month where we do my um, honorary... Um, repeat, well-received Halloween show, as you know, you <laughs> say, as different All Hallows' Eve. Um, and then you have another holiday that you celebrate instead of Halloween, don't we, Daryl? Well, well it, we have Guy Fawkes Night, Bonfire Night, but it's, yeah? it's funny because in the past decade, Halloween over here has become huge. I mean, it will yeah. never be as big as it is with you, but I mean... It's interesting because as a kid, you know, Halloween, you did, you sort of marked it and they showed like an old Bram Stoker film on telly. Yeah. telly but then it was all about bonfire night. But now it, it's amazing. I mean, my daughter goes trick-or-treating. And I mean, I never went trick or You know, it just didn't exist. We did a bit of apple bobbing, which was yeah. the old English sort of custom thing. But I mean, no, we've, we, you know, all the supermarkets, all the, all the stores have just got acres of Halloween stuff. So candy? Thanks for that. You're giving us something else. Oh, well, I have to tell you something funny that they're saying over here about Halloween this year in the states where um, marijuana is legal. They're saying that um, need to check their kids' candy because a lot of people are going to be dumping a lot of uh, candy that they picked up at the (laughs) shop. It'll cut down on any violence going on. No, I'm a huge I'm a huge Violet Crumble fan. Um, Cadbury's drinking chocolate, Cadbury's egg, and marzipan. Okay. <laughs> there you go. It's great English brands. Hold on, I like Hershey's and uh, another American brand I can't think of right now. Kellogg's. That that you know everyone loves Kellogg's. Kellogg's. Yeah, you All like right. Kellogg's? We have Kellogg's. Yeah, it's amazing. Wow, that's so cool. <laughs> but you, you, do you, you, yeah. Anyway, we could go go all night. What it's fun. Funny. 
it's funny how over here we like the UK stuff, and over there you guys like Levi's and American yeah, yeah. T-shirts and stuff like that. Oh yeah. So, you know, I want to thank you so much for being on the show today, and we're going to end the show today with a song in your eyes, um, and it's an acoustic version that um, I actually was given, and I wanted to ask you a little bit about your thoughts on In Your Eyes um, and what your experiences are with um, writing about that in your book, because it's re- referenced quite a few times in the book. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, it's interesting because I think it's it's become... It's one of those songs that meant far more with yourselves than it did over here, because obviously it was in the the, the John Cusack film... And that they're that mm-hmm. you know the huge bit with the boombox and all of that and yep. here I mean you know it, it was an album track it was much loved but I think in recent years it's it's sort of gathered momentum you know it's almost become like a snowball running down a hill sort of thing and and in a way you know that's becoming one of the most known Gabriel tracks and I I think there's something about it when you hear it and it's interesting I had. Um, a launch for my book and there's a, a wonderful I, I sort of urge you you were talking about luke potter i urge you to, to check out this this uh woman's work on uh the internet her name's nancy wallace oh, yeah tell me tell me and she is a brilliant sort of pure folk singer you sort of think of uh like um sandy denny a, a sort of really beautiful english oh, yeah. voice Great, sandy denny. what's her name and uh nancy wallace uh, and Nancy? Nancy now lives in um, uh, Montreal because uh, she she married a Canadian and she's she's over that side of the water. But she, uh, you know, I know she's a good friend of mine and she's a beautiful singer. And she always, whenever I do a book, she always sings. I always get her to do it, you know, to, to perform. And when when I did my Chic book, she did this marvelous version of. Um, um, Sheik's well, the Sheik organization, Carly Simon's Why, is a sort of folk ballad, um, mm-hmm. and for this, she she did in your eyes. She 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 played in your eyes, um, you know, to a packed packed room oh my God. Um, of some quite drunk people, and everyone was sort of singing it. Uh, you know, the, the, it wow, that, they all knew the, it. The, the, yeah, you know, I have a compilation of Peter Gabriel, and you know that song in my life is one of my favorites. You know, it just in has your eyes. Yeah, in your eyes. It the melod, the melodic line. The, it's very melodic. It has a, uh, you know what I mean. Thousand it's it's a flowing, flows along yeah. a continuity thing. It just flows along, and the melody is incredible. It draws you right in. I mean, for me, it's one of my my favorite Peter Gabriel songs. I pl- I play it a lot. You know, really. Well, well you're gonna love that. the version I'm playing. It's a live well, I version. Mean, I, my, 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 Final word. I mean, I think that way that is a classic Gabriel thing in the fact that he had the melody, or it was called something else, but for a long time, and he kept tinkering with it and tinkering with it, and then he heard Yus and the Door, and that mark, you know, just what he brings to the original. I don't know if he's in the acoustic version, but that bit where it sort of just becomes something else. Uh, mm-hmm. And I think you know, Gabriel first did that with Biko when when he did Biko, which you know we haven't talked about. There's so much we can talk about. But just a record is this enormous statement, a, a passionate piece of music, and I think in your eyes is, is you know, is its equivalent, um, and it touches, and the fact that you know it's written very personally from the heart about you know the the situation he was in with his his women at the time, um, mm-hmm. you know, he's very confessional in his writing, and I think all that makes for um, an incredible uh, bit of songwriting. So, cool. what a way to end, eh? Yay. Yeah, no. 
You're awesome. Buy this book, everybody out there. Buy this book. (laughs) You're lovely. Thank you very much. Thanks for calling in from New York. And um, I'm gonna play. I'm gonna play it so you can listen, Daryl. Or um, like I said, if anybody wants to hear the show afterwards, it will be on iTunes and on demand immediately afterwards on Red Velvet Media, Blog Talk Radio. And for everyone that tuned in, and everyone in the chat room, I want to thank everybody for listening and for you know tuning in and being a big supporter of us and we will be back on on friday and then next week we've got a full week um and then the special show on the friday with on the indie cafe with spencer and myself with steve conti and i want to thank you so much daryl for being here today and thank you so much spencer for being here oh, and you, uh, letting me know about daryl great show we love the show yeah so um, I'm gonna you. I'm gonna go into the end of the song. And Daryl, you're a sweetheart. Thank you so much for calling. Oh, and well, I want to thank, thank Kate. Kate, Kate's the most important person that put this together and put you and I together. Besides Spencer, Kate, thank you. <laughs> She's yeah. awesome. a beautiful thing. That's right. Yeah, there's she a lot is. of love okay, on the so, There's love. There's here, love in the publishing company. I know, and you're gonna love you're gonna love the um, ending of this song. It's really, really, really good. So here you guys go. Looking forward. All right. um, thanks for listening, everyone. Hey, thanks, Holly. Beautiful I'll see you, honey. Wednesday. You're welcome. You too. Good night. Good night, night Daryl. Bye bye now. Hey, bye. You've been listening to Red Velvet Media with Holly Steffi. Thanks for listening, and tune in again next time.